Every nation has a story of its foundation. These stories are usually glorious tales of oppressed masses fighting tyrants, ancient stories of heroes and gods, or legends of devout freedom fighters warring for the right to live the way they want to. Compared to these, the myth of the founding of Rome at first seems almost barbaric. This legend is filled with betrayal, crime, violence, with warring families and mass abductions that would seem more at home in a song of ice and fire. However, the Roman kingdom, turned republic, turned empire, lasted over 1,200 years, despite countless periods of civil war and chaos. Clearly, something about Rome enabled it to outlive many of the world's greatest empires and influenced the world in perhaps greater ways than any other nation in history. Looking past the dramatic battles and family drama, a close reading of the myth gives profound insights into exactly what made Rome so formidable and dominant throughout its history. A symbolic reading of its characters and events provide meaningful insights into human nature, the purpose of government, and how to create order in a chaotic world. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. Traditionally, Rome has shared a great amount of its culture with that of ancient Greece, and this debt to the Greeks dates to Rome's very beginning. The Iliad, the original epic poem of Greek mythology, which deserves a number of its own episodes, trust me, takes place surrounding the Trojan War, in which the Greeks famously infiltrated and burned the city of Troy. While we know precious little about the actual historical Trojan War, there probably was one. The myths around it were well known to the ancient Romans. Aeneas, a minor character in the Iliad, who would later get his own epic poem, was a Trojan refugee who settled in Italy with a number of his men. They are told to have founded a small kingdom in Alba Longa, Italy, from which a great empire would rise. Thirteen generations later, Alba Longa had two brothers with claims to the throne. The older brother, Numitor, was in line for the throne, but the younger, Amulius, insisted that he not be sidelined. The brothers agreed that, while Numitor would sit on the throne, Amulius would serve as the head of the treasury. However, Amulius knew that with control of the city's treasures, he held the true power, and he quickly usurped Numitor, imprisoning the former king's only daughter, Rhea Silvia, and forcing her into a life of religious celibacy so that no competitor could be born. Though Amulius's power was secure for now, the small kingdom of Alba Longa was not living up to Poseidon's prophecy in the Iliad that the lineage of Aeneas will rule over all the Trojans, and so too will his son and his son's sons who will be born thereafter. The god of war, Mars, known in Greek as Ares, took notice of Rhea Silvia as she was in a sacred garden dedicated to him. There, 
Priya Sylvia had an encounter with Mars that left her pregnant with twins. When they were born, Amulia sentenced the twin sons to death via abandonment in the wild. There, they were raised by a she-wolf, a favored animal of the god Mars, before being recovered and adopted by a shepherd named Faustulus. Faustulus named the boys Romulus and Remus, and they quickly gained followers among the commoners of Alba Longa. Organizing and defending the community against a number of bandit raids, settling disputes. One day, while Romulus is making sacrifice to the gods, Remus and a group of his followers become caught up in a battle between forces loyal to Amulius and those loyal to the old king Numitor, who is kept alive but subservient to his brother's throne. Remus is taken before Numitor when he hears the city dwellers talk of twins and rightful heirs and meets his mother and he learns his true background. At the same time, Romulus raises an army to rescue his brother. Revealing Remus as the surviving heir starts a revolt within the city as Romulus storms Abalonga from without. In the chaotic battle, an unprepared Amulius is swiftly killed. Romulus and Remus with their army of outcasts, return their grandfather Numitor to the throne, and choosing not to be subjects, set out with followers to found their own city. The brothers, rather than growing unified through their victory, are soon torn apart by fate. They return to the area where seven hills border the Tiber River, where they were suckled by the she-wolf and Romulus is drawn to the Palatine Hill to serve as the city's foundation, while Remus chooses the southern Aventine Hill. The brothers search for a sign from the gods regarding where to lay the cornerstone of their kingdom. They look to the sky, where Remus sees six birds flying above his Aventine Hill, and Romulus sees twelve, soon after, flying over his chosen Palatine. Many storytellers provide different details as to what happens next. Perhaps Romulus, who we already know made regular sacrifice and prayers, did not trust his brother's sign. Others say that Remus started building his own city, convinced that the appearance of birds over his hill first proved him right, while Romulus began construction of a wall surrounding his claim. The Roman historian Livy wrote of the conflict that follows. They then engaged in a battle of words, and, angry taunts leading to bloodshed, Remus was struck down in the affray. The commoner story is that Remus leaped over the new walls in mockery of his brother, whereupon Romulus, in great anger, slew him, and in menacing wise added these words withal. So perish, whoever shall leap over my walls. Thus Romulus acquired sole power, and the city, thus founded, was called by its founder's name. A period of mourning for the brother's death soon follows, but the city is completed and named Roma, or Rome, after Romulus. 
However, the new settlement is not quite ready for a period of peace. Romulus and his followers, that original group of commoners and warriors, mixed with criminals, escaped slaves, and refugees offered a place to live in the city with no questions asked. Romulus appoints 100 men as senators, setting the foundation for the Roman state with its first laws. But with some semblance of order within the walls, Rome now must turn to the outside. Though Rome's open-door policy toward attracting foreigners caused fantastic growth quickly, the Eternal City was now at risk of becoming a short-lived footnote in Italian history books. The mix of warriors, thieves, and refugees are exclusively male, with a reputation dissuading the women, to say the least, of the surrounding settlements from considering them as suitors. To solve this, the Romans organize a festival in honor of Neptune, and invite the neighboring Sabine tribe, hosting families in Roman homes. During the games, Romulus makes a signal, and the Romans execute their plan, a mass kidnapping of the young Sabine women. Their families, drunken from the festivities, are unable to act until it's too late, and the Romans take the Sabine women as wives. For one year, diplomacy is attempted and fails. In this time, the Sabine women, though longing for home, form close bonds with their new husbands, who earnestly try to overcome their savage nature. The women, taken to enable Rome to grow into a civilization, ironically end up having a civilizing effect on their captors. After one year of tensions, General Metius Curtius leads the Sabine army to the Roman walls, which they enter due to a successful bribe of the traitorous daughter of a Roman commander. Recent rains have left a thick mud between the Palatine and Capitoline hills, which each army's descend to clash in the muck. Romulus leads a flank on the Sabines, mirrored on the other side by his trusted commander Lucumo. However, when Metius's line breaks through the Romans, Romulus changes the battle plan, charges down to meet the Sabine general one-on-one. -on -one. Romulus and Metius clash, with Romulus, the son of the war god Mars, knocking Metius to the ground, forcing him to escape through the flooded marsh. Shortly after, Romulus is struck with a stone, and his trusted Lucumo is killed, forcing the Romans to retreat back up their hill. The Sabines regroup. The fight is even again once Romulus recovers. The Romans and Sabines each see a chance to finally turn the tide of battle in their favor once and for all, charging down to meet in the valley below. In an instant, both charges are disrupted as the women rush to the battlefield between their husbands and their fathers. They bring food, water, medical supplies to the injured, urging their families to make peace. The Sabines are integrated into the Roman kingdom, not as subjects, but as full equals, led by the women as peacemakers. This would set the precedent 
for a millennium of Roman history, integrating their conquered enemies into the kingdom. The story of Rome's founding has been told many ways by many people. Because of this, its exact historical accuracy is of course questionable. However, the symbolic elements of the story are consistent between Livy, Plutarch, and the many other authors. When viewed with a focus on these elements, a consistent meaning beyond simple history is clear. Whether Romulus and Remus were indeed fathered by the god Mars or not, they were unquestionably children of war. The Roman founders gained influence through defending the outskirts of Alba Longa in combat. And though their capacity for diplomacy was established, it was only through that combat that they restored Numitor to the throne of Alba Longa. The brothers' followers, a mix of ruffians and outlaws, are also metaphorically children of war. And though victory provided the brothers with the means to create their kingdom, distrust, conflict, and their natural warring tendencies led Romulus and Remus to a duel to the death. The story of Rome's birth, then, is the story of the birth of a civilization among the lawless. Romulus's leadership, not installing himself as a dictator, but rather creating the Senate, gave the young Roman kingdom a sense of law and order that tamed its wild men from turning on each other any further. The Roman Empire's late history, characterized by power-hungry aspiring dictators tearing the empire apart like clockwork in civil wars and assassinations, can be said to have taken the exact opposite path as Romulus. These late Roman emperors seem to have seen Romulus's killing of his own brother as a solution, rather than the problem that needed to be solved. It is not the example of Romulus alone, though, but rather that of the Sabine women that set Rome on its course to rule the ancient world. These women, putting themselves in the line of fire to stop their husbands and fathers from killing each other, showed Romulus and his children of war the model for how they would go on to integrate Italy, Europe, Asia, and Africa into their domain. With the integration of the Sabines, rather than subservience, citizenship for the Romans would never be a question of tribe, but a question of loyalty to the state. Law, not birth, was the deciding factor. This idea would carry on to, indeed, many of the modern nations today. The foundation story of the United States of America is that of a nation founded by idealistic underdogs fighting for freedom and liberty against oppression. The Soviet Union saw itself as an inevitable stage of history, moving the world closer toward revolution. The many Chinese states, though fundamentally different, were all told to be expressions of the will of heaven. By comparison, the story of Romulus and Remus 
The story of fratricide, mass kidnapping, and war seems anything but divine. However, focusing not on the beginning of the story, but on its end, shows what made Rome different from any of the other classical Italian kingdoms. Romulus, and in turn his city turned kingdom, rose above barbaric deception and warfare by integrating the Sabines as equals rather than subjects, as Romans rather than as conquered foreigners. As former slaves became senators and former enemies became compatriots, being a Roman citizen, being able to say, Civis Romanus Sum, meant more than saying one was a subject of a king, rather that one was the subject of the laws that made the Romans who they were. Good laws and citizenship above tribalism are what allowed Rome to rapidly grow in influence during the Roman Republic. Integrating new cultures, making them the people referred to in the Senate and the people of Rome, the Senatus Populusque Romanus, in the official state matters. Though Rome was born in war, between brothers and then between neighbors, the peace brought forth by the Sabine women is what set the stage for its growth. When this is acknowledged, the seemingly savage myth of Romulus and Remus becomes not only a tale of battlefield glory, but a tale of how Rome, its people, and its laws brought civilization to the world. Thank you for joining us in this study of the early Roman kingdom. Um, though Rome would certainly change, and the kingdom was pretty different from the Republic, was pretty different from the Empire, I hope that we can see the symbolic meaning and foundations that carried through its history all the way through the world today. Um, if you enjoyed, and if you've made it this far, it seems like you have, then I highly recommend subscribing. We have lots of content, a few collaborations in the work, so there is a lot to come, and I hope to see you around for it. Leave a comment below if there's something I missed, if there's something you want to add, um, even if it's just to say hello. And I hope to see you in our next episode, where we will be looking in our first of many Legends of King Arthur. My name is Sean. This is Mythos and Logos. Thank you.